Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. This year has gone by incredibly quickly, but it's always nice to pause and take stock. What's something you're proud of in 2024 so far? What's something you still want to accomplish this year? I know I'm guilty of falling into a routine and not always thinking about the bigger picture, but as the great Ferris Bueller once said, life moves pretty fast. If you don't stop and look around once in a while, you can miss it. So it's crucial to take a moment to celebrate your wins and make adjustments for the rest of the year. Therapy can help you contextualize your progress and set achievable goals for the next six months. As you surely know by now, it's not only for people who have experienced major trauma. Therapy is helpful in all kinds of ways, including learning positive coping skills and how to set boundaries. If you've been considering trying therapy, check out BetterHelp. It's fully online and was specifically designed to be flexible and customizable to your schedule. To get started, just fill out a brief questionnaire that matches you up with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Take a moment. Visit BetterHelp.com FilmDaily today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash film daily. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for Tuesday, June 25th, 2019. On today's episode, we're going to talk about what we've been up to at the water cooler. This is Slash Film Editor-in-Chief Peter Serrata, and joining me on today's podcast is Slash Film Managing Editor Jacob Hall. Hello, hello. Weekend Editor Brad Oman. Hey, that's me. Senior Writer Ben Pearson. Hey, what's going on? And Writer Swatran Bui. Hey, everyone. And Chris Evangelista. Hello. So the whole gang is back together. Let's talk about what we've been doing. I have not been doing much over the last week. Uh, I did go to Galaxy's Edge for one last reservation on uh, Sunday. The reservation is down. So if you have a, a, a pass or a ticket to Disneyland, you can actually just go there and get into a virtual queue to go to Star Wars Galaxy's Edge. But I went on the last day of reservations and... Guys, this place has been cleared out by all the Star Wars fans that got reservations. Um, they they sell these kyber crystals for your lightsabers, and uh, Doc Ondar's, that's where you buy them, uh, is all sold out. There's like a wall, an empty wall that they're supposed to be like these kyber crystals. They, you know, you can't even buy one if you want one. Uh, there is uh, the droids that you can make, which, by the way, I just posted a, I built a droid. 
at uh, in Droid Depot at Galaxy's Edge. You can customize and completely like completely build your own droid. I have a video that I put up on the site today, so I'll link that in the show notes. Um, check that out. But one of the cool things for the droids, you can buy these personality chips. They offer six different chips fall into one of three different factions, smugglers, resistance, or first order, and that changes how your droid sounds and acts, and they're sold out of all of them. There's so many things that are sold out, and it seems like Disney uh, woefully under-anticipated what people were going to buy. Uh, those quacky and monkey lizards, basically the salacious crumb-like creatures that sit on your shoulder, uh, have been sold out for a while, as have the loth cats. So, um... So, yeah, you can go to Galaxy's Edge, but a lot of the stuff is missing from the walls. Uh, Brad, you bought a bunch of stuff, and even, like, some of the stuff that you bought, like the Sabacc deck, is gone. So, it, it, it's, it's... Yeah, I'm really glad that you picked up that stuff for me and that I got to go to get a lightsaber because I can't imagine what that situation is going to be like for years to come. Peter, this is a big problem, right? Because they only have one active ride, and the restaurants and food have massive weights, and now you can't even yeah. shop there anymore. It seems like a huge, huge like misunderstanding on how to handle this on Disney's part. Well, they 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 fixed some of those issues, Jacob. Uh, now, I think at starting at seven a.m., you can re, you can go online and reserve a space at the cantina or at Savi's workshop to build the lightsaber. So, like that can be done online, and you don't have to like wait in a line um, in the land, which you know in in the heat. Uh, so that's better. But uh, strangely, I think Disneyland didn't know. Logistically, they didn't know how to handle the opening of this land, and they've actually blocked out most of the pass holders up until like the signature series, which is the top of the line. Uh, cast members are not allowed to go to Disneyland, and yesterday was the opening for you know Galaxy's Edge to anybody who bought a ticket, and the park was dead uh, because I I think just because people were afraid to go thinking it was going to be insane and then a lot of you know disneyland as you know jacob uh is locals and stuff a lot of those people are blocked out so uh i think i don't know i think disneyland's learning a lot from this experiment and what you know the process that they're they're building i'm wondering how it's going to reflect at, at disney world because the that kind of crowd is much different but um yeah anyways so galaxy's edge is opening it is still great i love it uh watch my videos i'll link it in the show notes jacob what have you been up to i went on the exact opposite trajectory if disneyland is one form of art i went to a fine art museum in uh uh fort worth texas the kimball art museum in fort worth it's not a huge museum but it's one of the nicer you know more respected museums in in texas at the very least and i was in dallas to visit my in-laws and my wife can talk about uh, art artists and classical painters in the same way you and I, Peter, talk about Disneyland and Disney theme parks. So it was very important to her to go to Monet, the late years, a new exhibit at the Kimball, which is not part of their collection. It's a traveling uh, exhibit that's there through September. So if you're in a Texas uh, or you know a Central Texas area and want to check out some uh, really cool art and like Monet and Impressionism, it is worth checking out. As the title implies, Monet, the late years, is the last 20 or so years of Claude Monet's life. And this is when he essentially retired to his estate in the French countryside, hired a massive team of gardeners and built ponds and bridges and, and like little miniature forests and roads and paths. And essentially built himself his own personal uh, like greenery space just so you could have a place to paint. So you could have like you walk outside and say, I want to paint this pond today or paint these trees today. And he spent the last 30 years with his eyesight failing, having cataract surgery. 
seeing colors in new ways and getting more experimental to the point where like a painting that from 20 feet away looks very different than one like when you're real close up to it. I'm not an expert. I went to art school and took art history classes, but I can't go <laughs> at length about Monet. But it was a very, very cool exhibit, and I really appreciate how it was laid out. It was very much laid out, uh, not necessarily by year, but by subject matter. So you can see uh, his obsession with water lilies over the years, like the same bridge painted from you know a decade apart. Uh, one view from the house, from a part of his rose garden, painted before and after he had cataracts removed from his eyes. You can see how the colors changed. I was it was a really impressive exhibit. It was like it's eighteen bucks, which is, you know, we we went through it in about an hour. But for a museum that is otherwise you know free to, uh, to enter and explore at, at your whims, you know, paying eighteen bucks to see you know all these masterpieces in one area was very cool. So that was the highlight of my weekend. Very cool. Okay, Brad, uh, you are home from Ghostbusters uh, Fan Fest, but you are still in the Ghostbusters collecting mood. Indeed, I am. Um, <clears throat> so, previous, I think a while back, I talked about the Diamond Select Toys has a cool line of Ghostbusters figures. They're like eight inch figures, and the, the first round of them, dedicated to the first movie, uh, had an entire lineup of, I think it was 15 total figures. Um, and if you collected them all, each of them came with a diorama piece to build the rooftop uh, playset from the ending of the first Ghostbusters, uh, where Gozer faces off with the team. Uh, and so they did the same thing for, with a Ghostbusters 2 line. And Ghostbusters 2 isn't uh, exactly as popular, and so I was hesitant to dive into it. But uh, the uh, what you get to build when you collect all the Ghostbusters figures is the uh, front facade of the Ghostbusters firehouse. And uh, on top of that, the line was made a little bit cooler at the very end because they released uh, six figures for the real Ghostbusters. And they've never really released cool, detailed figures like this for the animated versions of those characters. Uh, so the I had um, all of them for a while now, but I had waited to build the facade because I was having a hard time tracking down Egon Spengler from the real Ghostbusters line. Uh, for some reason, I don't know if he is more popular or if they made less of him uh, for whatever reason, but it took forever for a nearby um, comic and toy shop to finally get restocked. And I just got lucky this weekend and I called. I was like, any chance you guys have uh, Egon back in yet? And they were like, we literally just got him today. So I went and picked it up and I put it together. Uh, and it's awesome. And I, I hope that I'm done uh, with collecting these kinds of Ghostbusters figures because there's not really any other ones that they can make. At this point, um, and these the two scenes that you're able to build are, are pretty cool. So uh, I'm pretty satisfied with, uh, with the Diamond Select line of, of figures that they did. You know what, Brad? I'm kind of jealous of your, your toy collecting because I, I used to, back in the day, drive from Toys R Us to Toys R Us trying to you know get the figure that I was missing from whatever I was collecting. Uh, Star Wars figures or wrestling figures, whatever. And I feel like nowadays... I would just be tempted to just go on eBay and pay like a few extra dollars just to just to get it sent to my house. Well, that was that was the thing that was that sucked is the Egon one was so hard to find that uh, if you looked on eBay or Amazon or anything, you uh, the price was like around a hundred or one hundred and ten dollars, oh. which is which is like a four hundred percent markup. Yeah, yeah, that's pretty bad. Okay, yeah. I could see why you were calling around then. Yeah. Okay, let's move on to Ben. What have you been up to this week? Uh, well, this a couple days ago and actually last weekend or the weekend before last anyway, several days ago, uh, my wife and I have been training essentially to hike 
half dome up in uh, Yosemite National Park. So we've never been up there before um, together. And we're going to be, you know, Peter, you mentioned, I think, last week that we are constantly just like hiking around the L.A. area. Um, But we hiked Mount Baldy, which is uh, one of the tallest um, mountains in this region. It's like, I don't know, an several (laughs) i'm not entirely sure how far away it is from here but it's a good while but anyway it's about ten thousand feet um the hike is extremely difficult it's like four and a half miles and you gain four thousand feet of of uh land or whatever in that time so it's it's pretty tough like the grade is pretty steep um but anyway we're going to be hiking half dome uh, which is a, another very long, very difficult hike, um, but it's supposed to be, you know, very rewarding. And it takes like, I don't know, between 10 and 14 hours or something like that to do. And it's so it's it's we're like carving out a whole trip to go up to Half Dome and, and do this thing. Um, so I'm excited about it because I have never we've never really done anything quite this drastic before in terms of hiking stuff. So, um, yeah, I've just you know, we uh, the other day we went to the Hollywood Bowl and just ran the stairs over. Over there and i would encourage anybody in la if you're listening to this in los angeles you can just drop by the hollywood bowl and just like hang out there like during the day before shows are you know start getting uh, up and running in the summer and stuff like and they also have free sound checks a lot of times so like uh several years ago we went to the hollywood bowl and just listened to john williams do his sound uh, test what? before yeah before a concert later that night and we we didn't have tickets to the concert but you could just like walk in and hang out and listen to them you know just do a sound check and stuff so i just wanted to sort of throw that out there as like a psa for anybody who's listening in la um and also it's just the hollywood bowl i mean it's it's got a ton of history like the beatles played there and i mean it's it's like a very um it's a historic venue and it's just really cool to be there not in a full concert setting where it's crowded and there's drunk people everywhere so um yeah i'd recommend it as like a a good workout spot or uh whatever you want to use it for ben uh are you going to free solo this mountain is that what's gonna happen (laughs) are you gonna be like hanging off it without ropes and stuff dear god no and Uh, and we're not you know just to to clarify we're not actually climbing any rock faces it's more just like there are uh, well-worn paths that we're just going to be walking up so we're not doing any like uh you know powder and and uh you know like belaying and any of that like intense like (laughs) maybe you should have you thought of that that's your next step (laughs) are you building up to that you're going to be like dangling off of stuff i have thought about it and then i immediately began planning my own funeral right (laughs) so so you say it takes 14 hours 10 to 14 hours to walk up this thing like do you take breaks how does that work um no i don't think you take i mean i guess you maybe we'll take a break and grab some food at the top or something but you pretty much have to start early and uh because it takes yeah that long you're you basically got to get up and back in time before it starts getting like really dark out because i imagine that's pretty dangerous some people do um you know, like uh, have like full on sleeping bags and tents and the whole deal and and spread it out over multiple days. But it is possible to do it in one day, just sort of like an up and back thing. I think there's like a loop trail with two different types of scenery and stuff that you can see. There's like waterfalls and the whole deal. So anyway, I'm sure I'll talk about that more once I actually do it. But this is just the training portion. Have you thought about not doing this? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Brad Uh, and me are just like sitting here being like, we can't even imagine this. Like what happens if you start this and like, Halfway up, you just like decide like, yeah, we're not gonna make it. Let's, let's... Uh, that that is very possible. Um, 
I you just turn around and go home. Um, so you know, or you just live there. <laughs> right. Yeah. You, you exactly. You, you build yourself a log cabin. You just like make yourself. Yeah. I I send in my resignation to Slash Film, and I just become a mountain man. So. <laughs> yeah. Um. And it, now's probably a good time to mention that HT does not have her usual recording setup. Uh. What What was happening, HT? Something was wrong with your computer. Yeah, my battery um is on the fritz essentially after like 60 percent battery it would just shut down immediately and um it's not working well with uh when it was my main working computer so i just had to send it to the apple store and get it sent back and i'm just kind of waiting for it now yeah i think brad had some similar problem on my macbook pro like some of my keys are sticking like i feel like apple is not what it used to be but uh anyways uh this is just a way of saying that if you think HD sounds any different? It's because she's re- recording on an iPad. So there you go. Yeah. Uh, oh, hey, by the way, really quickly, uh, to go back to Ghostbusters collecting thing, I'm just, I'm just going to put this uh, out there into the void to see if anyone can provide any help. But uh, there is a line of Blitzway six scale Ghostbusters figures that were distributed by Sideshow Collectibles in the United States. They seem to be sold out absolutely everywhere. I have Venkman, <laughs> Ray, and Egon, but I need Winston, and I held off on buying him for so long that I can't find him anywhere. I have tried endless online stores. I have called all my local comic book shops. Uh, I, I can't find him anywhere. So if anybody out How there listening, how much does this sell for on eBay? Uh, it, it's I, I can't find any on eBay. When I oh, when wow. I was when I was able to find it on eBay, and I was watching them, and I was just holding off on watch uh, buying them because they're they're expensive figures. They're about three hundred and fifty dollars. Uh, and they would go for around 400 450 depending on how many were available on eBay. Um, the only ones available on eBay right now are the four-pack that has all four of them, and it comes with some exclusive Slimer, um, a Slimer like accessory and uh, police barricade and stuff like that. So if anybody out there listening happens to have a line on a Winston Zetamore six-scale Blitzway slash Sideshow Collectibles figure... Uh, get at me on Twitter at Ethan underscore Anderton because I, I will buy it. Brad, why didn't you say so? I have three of them on my desk right here. Son of a bitch, Ben. Ben, what we're going to do is we're going to take those up to uh, Half Dome, bury them, give Brad, give Brad GPS coordinates, and, and maybe he'll find them in time. This is the worst geocache I have ever heard of. Uh... Brad, would you do that if if we told you that we'd get you one if you made it to the top of Half Dome or whatever it's called? I would. I would probably die trying to get it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's move on to what we've been reading. Uh, Jacob, what have you been reading and listening to? Uh, yeah, I, I'm decided. I I called uh, a new rule right before we start recording. I think podcasts should be allowed in the reading section because I don't know where else to put them. And I want to recommend the Shrink Next Door, a podcast by Wondery and Bloomberg, the the same network that did uh, Dirty John. And I feel like since that podcast was a huge hit, they've been doing lots and lots of mostly quality true crime podcasts. But the Shrink Next Door, which I listened to on my way to Dallas, on my way back, uh, both ways. Uh, it's only six episodes long. It's refreshingly different from the usual uh, true crime podcast. It's not about a serial killer, but it's about uh, a writer named Joe Nacera uh, who buys a house in the Hamptons and learns that his next door neighbor, a uh, a, a brilliant acclaimed uh, therapist who has a clientele that includes like celebrities and multimillionaire business people, is not who he claims to be. And it this, uh, the uh, podcast is like five years of investigation 
as he unravels this uh, psychiatrist's extremely dark dealings and how he essentially acts, acts as a cult leader to uh, indebt his patients to him and destroy their lives. And I found it to be absolutely horrifying, and it has no resolution. And if you Google what happens afterward, this guy really hasn't been punished. And it's, it's, it's not really a spoiler. I, his story itself is so fascinating, and it's not where... The point is not to punish him. The point is to tell the stories of his patients. But knowing that, you know, there's psychopaths like him out there not murdering people, but... Destroying lives. I I was chilled by this. Has anybody else listened to this? Chris, I think it's up your alley. I have it, but just you describing this has made me really want to watch. The, I listen to this, so I'm actually going to download it now immediately. Yeah, I I, I think it's really up your, I think it's up your alley of interests. And as someone who's listened to a lot of serial killer podcasts, I found a look at a very different kind of psychopath. Not refreshing because that's you know the wrong word, but a reminder that. Evil takes on many forms, and not all of them are murdering people and burying bodies. Some of them are just doing these kinds of deep-seated psychological scarring over decades to innocent people to take advantage of them. And I found it fascinating, and I really do recommend it. Hmm. Okay, and that's called The Shrink Next Door? Uh, yes, it is. It's available on uh, uh, iTunes, oh, I guess Apple Podcasts. iTunes doesn't exist anymore or, or whatever is going on with that. But <laughs> wherever you listen to your podcast, The Shrink Next Door is on it. Yeah. Wherever you're listening to this, uh, Ben, what have you been uh, listening to? Yeah, another another listening to option here. I just wanted to give a quick shout out to the Chernobyl podcast. We talked a lot about the HBO series Chernobyl over the past several weeks on this show, and um, it's a tremendous series. And again, I would encourage everybody to watch it. But also, uh, after you check out the show, I would encourage you to listen to this podcast because it's only five episodes long. It's basically a each there's one episode devoted to the making of each of the episodes of the show and it's uh peter sagel who is the host of wait wait don't tell me which i think is an npr show and um he interviews craig mazin who is the creator of chernobyl just about the production of the show and some of the changes that he had to make to when he was like actually uh, writing the scripts and, you know, the difference between what happened in real life and the creative liberties that um, Mason had to take when he was making the show. And it's just really, really fascinating for somebody who might, the extent of my knowledge of Chernobyl was a disaster happened there a long time ago and it was bad before I saw the show. Um, this podcast was a really great, uh, a companion piece to the show and i just want to I, it has like several million downloads already so chances are if you're listening to this you may have heard about it already but just in case you haven't and if you really enjoyed the show um it enhanced my appreciation of the show a lot so that's the chernobyl podcast it's available wherever you get your podcast it's actually on youtube too if you want to watch it there or, or listen to it there um so yeah i would just recommend that too okay let's move on to what we've been watching uh jacob what have you been watching this week well, I'll start with the movie that a uh, few of us saw last week at early screenings. And that is Ari Aster's Midsommar. Uh, of course, Aster is the director of Hereditary, and it's this follow-up. And unlike Hereditary, which is very humorless and set entirely in the shadows, Midsommar is surprisingly funny and set uh, in Europe where the days are very long, the sun never sets, but plenty of bad things still happen. And this movie is fantastic. It's not as scary as Hereditary, maybe, but it is funny and and like really crazy and weird and it hits some really emotional beats that i was not expecting it's not about what the trailers say it's about and i'll leave it there for now but chris he wrote a review and it was a rave 
Yeah, I, uh, you know, I went into this uh, sort of, um, I don't want to say skeptical, but uh, I had I had actually heard through the grapevine that the film was like boring. I'm not going to say who told me that, but some <laughs> some people on the inside told me like, uh, you know, be warned, this movie is actually boring, and you know, the, the runtime is is it's almost like two hours and thirty minutes. So I was like, oh no, what if this is bad? So I went into the film sort of nervous. And I don't know who, you know, thought this was boring, but this movie, you know, like I said, even though it's a long movie, it flew by for me. There was not like a single moment where I was like, boy, this is dragging. Um, I, I loved pretty much every minute of this movie from start to finish. Um, it's definitely like Jacob said, it's definitely not as, you know, dread inducing as hereditary. And it's it's shockingly funny. Like I laughed more at this movie than I think I've laughed at, laughed at most comedies this year, except maybe like Booksmart. Like it's just it's shockingly funny how 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 funny this movie is. And uh, I don't I don't know how people are going to react to this because you know I, obviously Hereditary was polarizing for many because it, it got sold as this you know uh, ultimate scary movie and I think Hereditary is great but it's not your typical scary movie and this is even less of your typical scary movie because while it is a horror movie and while horrific stuff happens in it it's so uh, both funny and strange and it has this it has this very um unsubtle message about like toxic relationships and gaslighting and basically going out with really shitty guys. And I have a feeling shitty guys everywhere are going to react to this movie very poorly because it's, it's calling them out on their terrible behavior and they're going to be affronted to that. So I'm very curious to see how this goes over with the public. But beyond that, I love this. I actually think I like it more than hereditary. Yeah, and I, one thing I'll, I'm gonna toss this to Ben in a second, see if he agrees with this. I feel like Hereditary is about uh, family baggage and how you're cursed with it, whereas Midsummer, in many ways, is about family baggage that you're cursed with, but you also are, are happy to be cursed with it. Like it's like, oh, that's just a thing my family does. Uh, ben, did you get a similar read on, on that? Man, that's interesting. I did not get a similar read on that, but um, but I certainly agree in terms of Hereditary. I think ultimately I like Hereditary a little bit more because of that dread that, that Chris mentioned. That movie is just soaked in dread all the way through, and the, the brightness of this one does remove a little bit of the scary element here, and I, I sort of went in wanting to be scared a little bit more than I ended up being, but... This is a tremendous piece of work. I mean, it is just um, it's a little bit different than I thought it was going to be. But there there are so many things seated in here and so many messages and, um, you know, just like a few there, there are uh, these tapestry images that have um, like figures carved into them and, and sewn into them that are doing things that foreshadow what happens later in the movie. So keep an eye out for stuff like that. It's, it's really fascinating. There's like uh there's there there are posters um in a character's room that that I caught early in the movie that represents or, or foreshadows an event that directly happens really, really far into the movie. Um, there is like some psychedelic stuff going on here. There, the visual effects actually were something I wasn't expecting to be impressed with by this movie, but it really, it did something I never really seen before, especially in like a folk horror setting like this. So yes, I, I would definitely recommend this. Um, but <laughs> as Chris said, I, this is not a movie for everybody. And I'm very curious as well to see how people react because, because I think, you know, if you go into this movie, especially seeing the trailer and and 
maybe if you've seen like the wicker man for example you kind of think that you know what you're in for with this but there's a lot going on here that i think is worth like serious discussion so maybe we can have a more uh, a deeper discussion about that once the movie actually opens yeah i I think the wicker man is like the 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 movie you want compared to after seeing the trailer but there's another horror movie uh another equally famous film from the 70s that i think it reminds me more of uh, but I think talking about that movie would be a spoiler. Yeah. So let's let's put a uh, bookmark here and say when Midsummer comes out, we'll have this, we'll have the conversation about what I feel like this movie is the inversion of in many ways. Okay, let's uh, let's move on to a movie that we saw yesterday. It's called Yesterday, and this is a film that was on my most anticipated of the summer list. Like I think this was maybe three or four up there. Like I was really psyched to see this. And as I was about to leave my house into our Slack channel enters HT to, to, to write, Oh no guys, yesterday is bad. So HT tell us why yesterday is bad. All right. Well, um, so yesterday is a film directed by Danny Boyle written by Richard Curtis. And this is a film that has a really cute premise. It was something that I was looking forward to a lot as well. It's the idea that um, this one man uh, hits his head in an accident and wakes up and realizes that he's the only one in the world who remembers the Beatles. And um, this, uh, I remember when this came out at uh, Tribeca and um, there were some sort of lukewarm reviews of it saying that it was more sentimental than people thought. And I was like, okay, so this is more of a Richard Curtis film and I'm prepared for this movie to be more of a rom-com. And I'm actually kind of excited for that because I am one of the first people to defend Richard Curtis. I think his brand of sentimentality um, has its uh, positives. I will, I love, you know, love actually, unironically. I, his, his episode of Doctor Who is one of my favorites. I think that like he can get treacly, but he has a charm and a, um, and a genuine warmth to his movies that can come through in films like About Time. Uh, and so I was watching this film and I was on board for, you know, the first half of the movie where you have a lot of those hallmarks of Richard Curtis film. There's that close friend group. There's that uh, charming uh, rom-com thread with the leads played by Lily James and Himesh Patel, who are incredibly, utterly charming, by the way. Uh, but um, I... <laughs> will say that it just this movie is um kind of like what i would describe it as is nice core eating its own tail it's just so incredibly allergic to conflict of any kind and of holding its characters accountable that it becomes like this sentimental sticky mess of a film that not even the moments that I liked and not even the leads really could save it. Uh, Peter talked about the ending. I think the ending is a lot of the reason why this movie doesn't work because, you know, for the first half, it's sweet. It it rides on its premise really well. But then it also takes a long time to not really do much with its premise other than for some reason fall back on the standard biopic uh, various montages of of him going on like tour and seeing and singing half of the versions of like the Beatles songs. And um, I really think that it's Richard Curtis giving into just the worst of his sentimental impulses and Danny Boyle not really knowing what he's doing here. Um, I I did say, I I said in the Slack channel that I thought Danny Boyle was phoning it in. Maybe he's not phoning it in, but I feel like he 
didn't really know what to do with this material. And at some points during the dialogue scenes, I feel like he got kind of bored. There are several scenes in which um, there's just like mundane dialogue scenes. And for some reason, just one shot is done in like this weird Dutch angle. And I was like, what is the reason for this? And it happens four times throughout the film, but it's not a consistent thing. And he keeps, he just does it like three or four times. And I was like, that's very odd. I feel like he just got bored or something when he was doing the dialogue scenes. And um, I feel like, and he doesn't seem to have quite a grasp on like how to shoot musical scenes as well. Like um, this, there are some scenes. Um, he almost um, seems un- like unconfident that like the yeah. music is good. Like the, the first time he's playing a song like from the Beatles and no one had heard the song, he cuts away to like these wide shots of like dogs on the beach and stuff. And I'm like, shouldn't this be a moment about the song? Like, yeah. It- it's not shot in a very dynamic way at all. Like, for example, if you see just something like Sing Street, it's done in such a dynamic, really energetic way. And it is just kind of the same thing. It's just people singing and, and strumming guitar. But here you really feel like it's just a guy singing and strumming guitar. And uh, I was very disappointed in that. And I just, um, yeah, I, it's, it's a mess of a movie. And, and like, it's, it really just takes a long time to go nowhere with its premise. I feel like this, could have been done better in like a Twilight Zone episode or something that's more condensed, um, Twilight Zone or Black Mirror or something of the sort. Um, but here it just feels very, very slight and paper thin. Well, I got to the theater last night after, you know, seeing your brief review in the Slack channel, like, so, like, just not sure what I was going to expect. And halfway through this movie, I'm, like, thinking, like, what is HT talking about? This is great. Like, this is so charming. It's fun. The songs are great. The, you know, the two leads are great. Uh, maybe there's really not much to this love story, but I, I was still, who cares? I'm enjoying it regardless anyways. And, um, and then, like, the end of this movie come. And, there, and, there, and also there's, like, some, some good twists and turns that you don't expect. And then the end of this movie comes and like, it was almost like someone came up to me and punched me in the face. <laughs> like, like I, I really, oh, no. I don't know. I what really like ending? The, the ending of this movie. It's just like the, this, this, this film is so clever and charming. And the ending of this movie is just so, it's such generic bullshit. Uh, and does, uh, does John Hinckley show up and be like, are you this? Oh, my God. Geez, wow. <laughs> what? Uh, I, I want to know what's so shocking. I mean, about I mean, no, it's not a shocking ending. I'm, I'm right. probably building this up like it's shocking. I'm just saying it's like, not the shocking. Ending... The problem is that it's not shocking. Oh, all right. So the John Hinckley ending would be better is what you're saying. <laughs> yeah. It's just like it just kind of ends. I mean, when, like, when, oh. when I saw the trailer, I, th- I was like, oh, my God, how is this going to end? Please don't let it be that he wakes up in the hospital and the whole thing was a dream. And that's not the ending of this movie, okay? But honestly, that ending might have even been better. That <laughs> ending, ending would have been better. <laughs> and I, I really that's was fearing that ending, and that's not the ending of this movie. This, the ending of this movie feels like something that would be like produced for like a mainstream romantic comedy, generic, you know, bullcrap. Uh, I don't know. It's... I also don't. I like... wouldn't even. I would. I would reject that. It's just even for a mainstream romantic comedy because I feel like even that would have been. Yeah. Slightly better. This just feels kind of like a cop out of an ending. Yeah. But but surely noted Beatles superfan Ben Pearson loved this movie, right? <laughs> oh yeah. So ben. I, I will say that uh, yes, as Jacob has sort of alluded to, I have zero 
uh, appreciation or not appreciation. I appreciate the Beatles, but I don't love them. I I don't ever really listen to their music. I just sort of like acknowledge that they existed and transformed the shape of pop music forever. But that's about as far as my uh, re- uh, relationship with the Beatles ever went. But I will say that this movie made me really want to give the Beatles a better, like a fair shake and like actually sit down and listen to everything beyond just the the hits that you kind of hear that permeate the culture. Um, so I think in that regard, it's a huge success. Well, I think both Peter and HT are really, um, I don't know. I mean, obviously the, the movie is going to work differently for different people, but I had a really great time with this movie. I, I think it's very surface level. There's not much going on um, in terms of like its messages. I think actually it, it can kind of be pretty thematically muddled at times, but if you're just looking for, a good summer movie that delivers on the promise of its trailer where you're just, you know, you walk in and you want to hear good music and, and have a, uh, an interesting story and, um, you know, watch charismatic leads and, and it's sort of just like watch it as like a fun movie and not anything to take super seriously. Um, I think this movie delivers on that. And it's weird for me to say that because I kind of am constantly (laughs) always looking underneath the surface at at movies. And I feel like in any other scenario, I would be the one who is on your side, like, you know, complaining about how this movie is inconsistent or whatever. But for some reason, it just worked really, really well for me. So I don't know. I guess your mileage may vary on this one. but um, That's really funny to me, too, because you don't like Richard Curtis either. You're an avid anti-love. Yeah, I I love... Uh, about time but I despise love actually and this one is like right in the middle for me where it's like oh this is just a fine fun time at the movies so um, yeah who knows what what's going on there <laughs> I think it's worth watching maybe not in theater like it's two thirds of a, a decent film I also had a problem with the comedy I don't like Kate McKinnon and she plays this agent and I, uh, a manager type and I know Brad's gonna say Peter is just a comedy curmudgeon who hates over-the-top comedy, but and maybe that's correct. I'm self-aware. I understand that. Uh, but it felt like this was trying to be more of a, like, the the premise is crazy, but, like, the people are down to earth, and uh, she's kind of over-the-top in this thing. And also, yeah, it seems, she's very over-the-top. I'll give you that. Yeah, and it also seems like Danny Boyle and everyone involved in this film either don't know or don't care about how the internet works or the depiction of technology and going viral. It's just like every single time there's something like that, it's like grown worthy, <laughs> um, which I just hate in films. But uh, yeah, so uh, so you actually liked it, Ben. You you liked it more than us. Yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah I didn't get a I'm very to... confused right now. <laughs> I didn't get a chance to talk to him uh, because uh, he was walking out of my row. And I think like I was so like... I was fuming. I was like you sitting there. Shell shock. Yeah, I'll say that. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. So yesterday, uh, depending on, uh, yeah, your your mileage may vary, I guess. So uh, I, would, I would like to, I would like to see another movie that uh, comes after this called Daydream Believer, where somebody uh, knows all of the songs by the Monkees that nobody else remembers, but no one cares because those songs <laughs> suck. <laughs> um, okay. Let's move on to Child's Play. Uh, Jacob and Chris, you both saw this. Uh, Chris, what did you think? Um, <laughs> this movie, uh, I, I'm I'm befuddled by this movie because, for one thing, I don't think it's very good. But for another thing, a lot of people I respect, uh, especially in like the horror community, seem to really enjoy this. And I can't really figure out why. Um, 
this is just my theorizing, but I feel like everyone thought this was going to be a train wreck. And the fact that it wasn't, everyone's like, oh, maybe it's good. And I don't, <laughs> I don't think it's that, um, you know, it's, it's definitely not a train wreck, um, but it's just really poorly made. It's badly edited. There's, there's almost no character development at all. And I mean, look, you know, when you're going into a, a child's play remake, I know you're not going in for high art. I, I get it. But, you know, that, that that first Child's Play, that's a legitimately good movie. It has a clever script. And the characters, especially the, you know, the three leads are, are pretty well developed. And even Chucky is pretty well developed. And no, you get none of that in this movie. You know, I like. Chris, are you trying to say that this, this isn't an elevated horror movie? No, it's definitely not an elevated <laughs> horror movie. Um, and, you know, I, I like almost everyone involved in this movie. I, you know, I love Aubrey Plaza. I really like Brian Tyree Henry. I, you know, I really like Mark Hamill. Who's, who's the new voice of Chucky, but none of them can do anything with this, especially Mark Hamill, who I, you know, we all know Mark Hamill is a great voice actor. So hiring him to be the new voice of Chucky, that's a great idea, but they don't give him anything to do. And I don't really like the voice. He uses. Like he deliberately tries to make his voice, completely different than Brad Dorif, the original Chucky. And that's commendable. I, I don't want him to do the same exact thing, but he does this thing where he makes Chucky really like childlike and he gives him this like baby voice, which just really like bothered me the whole movie. I don't, I just really didn't like this. And I, I, I wanted to like it, you know, even though I had a bad feeling about it, I was like, maybe it'll surprise me. And it just, it really did not. And I, I wish I could, I'd like it. I wish I could like it as much as most of the horror community seems to like it. Uh, no, Chris, you're right. This movie sucks. Uh, we're on the right side of history. And <laughs> people are going to see this in 10 years and say, what, what was everybody thinking? This is garbage. And they'll go rewatch the rest of the franchise, which has a personality even at its worst. Because this movie is a series of scenes strung together that have no pacing, no cohesion. It is just a bunch of half-baked ideas. Some ideas are an interesting recipe, but they're not cooked correctly if you want to continue that strangled metaphor. But it's like, Arby Plaza's character is a you know, very young mother. And it's like, oh, it's an interesting take on, you know, a young mother doesn't know, doesn't know how to be a mom and they don't go anywhere with it. There's Brian Tyree Henry being, you know, a uh, black detective in a neighborhood where, you know, the community does not respect him, doesn't want to help him when these murders start. That's an almost interesting idea. Uh, and they don't go anywhere with it. Chucky being a robot who is learning uh, and starts to uh, go violent because he wants to be the kid's best friend instead of kill the kid is an interesting idea, but it doesn't do anything interesting with it and ultimately just devolves into Chucky stabbing people a lot. This movie feels small. It has some gory kills that people seem to be impressed by and they're fine. The score is really good. I, I think I can imagine Bear McCreary's score being the kind of thing you hear played, like blasted at haunted house, houses, like you're waiting in line for years to come. It's, it's that good. But there's nothing here that works. And I'm just keep bouncing back to the opening scenes of the movie where uh, as the, the Chucky's new origin story is that an overworked and stressed out Southeast Asian factory worker intentionally turns off the safety guide before committing suicide like at the factory, which is like such loaded imagery and such a um, if you're going to borrow that kind of imagery from real world headlines and, you know, take other people's suffering to, you know, fuel your horror movie. At least be Midsummer. At least have an artistic point and be brilliant. Don't be a tacky child's play remake. And I, the whole movie feels like the whole movie feels like it's borrowing things that I think are clever, 
and never running with them and just leaving them sitting there thinking that's enough. And it never is. It is just a lump of nothing sitting there being ruthlessly uninteresting. And I can't even get too angry about this movie. It is just a standard, no good, bad movie. Not even bad in fun ways. It is just bad. Well, that's disappointing. Let's move on from a horror movie about toys to a family film about toys. And I'm talking about Toy Story 4. You heard Jacob and Ben talk about this on previous episodes. Uh, the rest of the crew... Actually, Chris, you haven't seen it yet, right? No, I have not seen it yet. I will probably be seeing it this week because I have to write something about it. So yeah. I'll see it soon. Yeah, I'm wondering if it's going to warm your uh, your dead heart, Chris. Is it, is it Stranger gonna... things have happened. I don't know. We'll yeah. see. Um, okay, but uh, Brad and I talked about this yesterday a little bit. I have not heard much from HT. HT, what did you think of Toy Story 4? I really enjoyed it. Um, I was on the fence about the existence of this movie at all because I thought Toy Story 3 was such a perfect ending. Um, but I was proven wrong because, honestly, Toy Story 4 is the even better ending. It takes uh, the themes and the ideas of um, family and of self uh happiness and self-sufficiency beyond that into something that I feel like is almost the most emotionally rich of the Toy Story movies. Maybe the most um, specific, I would say. I feel like, I, I'm, I think uh, Ben has talked about this before, how uh, it feels like the, the Pixar animators are going through something right now. And I, it is kind of a um, an understatement to call this midlife crisis the movie. Um, but it it goes into those ideas and those concepts in a way that's very authentic and just very emotionally powerful. And yeah, Woody is um, the main character of this franchise and he finally gets his swan song with Toy Story 4. Uh, but that is to say, um, that's not to say that any of the other characters don't get their time to shine either. We get to see uh, Bo Peep finally get a little bit more spotlight uh, she goes from being the damsel to an action girl in this movie, but in a way that's very um, organic. And uh, I really enjoyed seeing her have more of a fulfilling role and in doing and be more of that role um, in a way that makes sense to the character rather than just being like, oh, we have like one female character. Let's just kind of do something with her. Um, and of course, Forky, my favorite toy, my favorite character. <laughs> I love him. Uh, the existential crises of characters and the millennial analog, to be real. I absolutely loved him and his uh, uh, pondering of existence and why he came to be. And it is a little frightening to think, to think of the fact that children can't have that power of God to bring um, life to <laughs> inanimate objects. But um it's Toy Story. What are you going to do? And uh, I, I really enjoyed that. I like that um, that idea of uh, putting uh, that once your, your uh, purpose has been fulfilled, especially in Woody's case, that you can put yourself forward. Um, so I this is going to be something very specific to me that like I don't think anyone else has ever seen or read this. Um, but there's a book called The Remains of the Day. It's written by Kazuo Ishiguro, who uh, wrote Never Let Me Go. I think there was a film... Uh, of it too with Anthony Hopkins and Eva and Emma Thompson and um, it follows this butler who has devoted his entire life to being like the perfect butler and in his twilight years you know reaching 70 80 he realizes that he has you know done nothing for himself and that he's kind of left with this bare 
threadbare room and the only the uh, promise of lost love. And it's, it's very sad and melancholy. And I feel like Toy Story 4 definitely captures that in a way that um, I don't didn't really expect. And um, I, like I was saying before, it kind of felt like the most emotionally rich of the Toy Story 4 movies, maybe the most emotionally, yeah, mature or something, uh, dealing with a, a, an experience that a Pixar film hasn't really tackled yet. So I I really enjoyed it, is what I'm saying. Yeah. I think it's too soon for me to rank them. I will mm-hmm. say that I don't think Toy Story 4 was, is essential, but I'm really glad they made it. And it uh, I really enjoyed it. And I was un- not expecting uh, to think that it was, you know, as as good as it is. And it's such a great bookend to these characters. And um, Oh, I do want to say I have one tiny criticism, yeah. though. So my one criticism with this movie is how they dealt with Buzz Lightyear. Um, he was always sort of a periphery character to begin with, but in this case, his uh, whole subplot of not knowing what his inner voice is and uh, trying to figure that out felt like very much, very much like a discarded subplot from like Toy Story Two or Toy or the first Toy Story or something. It um, felt kind of like he regressed, and I was kind of like, oh, he he's not the main character anyway, so it doesn't matter. But that annoyed me a little bit. I will say uh, they didn't say this outright, but when I, when I interviewed the directors, the director and the producers of the film uh, at the junket a few weeks ago, that interview is now on SlashFilm.com. We'll link to in the show notes. Um, they said that when they first wrote the script, Buzz was barely in it, and they said it in the interview with a positive spin. They had to go back in and beef up Buzz's part, and that's probably my criticism too, HG, is that it does feel like they went in and had to beef up Buzz's part because he's the, the second lead of the franchise as opposed to him having a purpose to actually add to the story. I feel like you can cut all of the scenes and the movie is essentially the same. Yeah. But, For but, sure. Yeah. Um, Brad, we talked to you about this a little bit yesterday. Do you have anything to add about Toy Story 4? No, I mean, uh, I, I, yeah, I said a lot of what I felt yesterday and really just I did a complete 180 on this movie in that it it's a movie that I uh, didn't think need to exist and I, w- I didn't think it looked all that great from the, the marketing, uh, but I saw it and... You know the tears flowed. I was I was more than satisfied. Uh, I love the new characters. I love the what they do with Woody as a character and the ending of this this movie. Uh, and just yeah, how it, it really just it improves upon uh, Toy Story three and and just takes it to a different place and pulls at your emotions in a in a different kind of way. Um, and yeah, it's just um, everything that HT said is true. Uh, Forky even works. I wasn't even sure that would be a thing that. Uh, did land very well, uh, even though his his existence is still kind of uh, shocking and odd. Uh, it really doesn't matter in the grand scheme of things. Although I would pay to see what other things actually are loved enough by kids when they pretend they're toys that actually come to life as toys. Um, but yeah, this this is just it's it's wonderful, and I, I hope that people um, don't stay away because they had the same thoughts I did because it's it's worth taking a shot on, and you should definitely go out of your way to see it. Uh, with your family this summer yeah uh i feel like the logistics of how things work in the toy story universe have now become very scary kind of like the cars universe but uh you know if if a kid could just put their name on a popsicle stick and that makes the popsicle i mean not, not popsicle stick uh as popsicle oh well, i guess yeah it is popsicle stick legs right um or feet uh it makes that fork sentient that's a little frightening. Well, yeah, not, but, 
But at the same no. time, that, that the movie acknowledges that. Uh, I don't know if anyone said here stay through the credits, but there's a mid-credit scene where the last spoken line of dialogue in the entire Toy Story franchise directly acknowledges how terrifying it is that these toys are alive in the first place. <laughs> so, uh, I, I think that I think the movie's very aware of that, Peter. At least I I, I, I think so. Maybe we're all the playthings of some godlike figures doomed to be discarded. Well, the, the the weirdest thing about it is that when Forky comes to life, he all he's saying is trash, because which implies he had some semblance of sentience while he was in the garbage can, not a fully formed quote unquote toy yet. Did he? That's I mean, how else would he know that he's trash? Yeah, I guess you're right. Hmm. We got to think more on this. Okay, but uh, <laughs> while we're doing that. Jacob is going to talk about Neon Genesis Evangelion. Uh, yeah, uh, after years of being unavailable in the United States and people having to resort to overpriced DVDs and bootlegs, uh, Neon Genesis Evangelion, or just Eva, we're probably going to call it that from now on, is available on Netflix with a new English dub that's already caused tons of controversy across the internet. And and Netflix didn't put up the rights to some music, so there's some different song choices. The internet's also mad, but... One of the best pieces of anything I've ever seen in my life is now available to stream for people, and it's mostly intact. So this is a reason to celebrate. This is a a massively popular anime series from the '90s, uh, created by I'm, gonna, I'm sorry, Japanese listeners, uh, Hideaki Anno, uh, and it starts off being looking like a fairly typical giant robots versus monsters anime, and it very quickly starts revealing that it's not. First of all, it is shot brilliantly the cinematography the use of camera angles here is really brilliant where he puts his camera uh, Anno and his directors uh it's stunning and when the robot versus monster battles aren't happening this is a story about depression about uh the need for other human beings about uh feeling so attached to your hobbies or your work that you lose sense of self and eventually this, this series starts getting so abstract and strange I think the only thing I can rival is probably Twin Peaks Season 3 for where it ultimately goes. And ultimately, it climaxes in episodes that were so controversial in the 90s that in an age before this was common, there were death threats to the creators, their offices were vandalized. So they made a sequel film that replaces the ending of the series. It's also streaming. That's called The End of Evangelion. It's all streaming on Netflix now. So you can go watch the series with its original ending, with the movie ending, both of which have the same thematic point, but get there in very different ways. And this show blew me away when I first watched it like, about a year ago. I have a friend who who swore by it, and he very nervously showed it to me. He was he was terrified I would hate it and terrified I'd, I'd be turned off by it. And it has some typical anime weirdness. And if you're opposed to the medium entirely, maybe that will bother you. But I feel like this is a very mature, very funny, very uh, socially and morally raw uh, series. It, it's tearing its heart open and it's Anno really putting himself out there and using tricking you with giant robot battles and saying let's explore why we're unhappy <laughs> and uh, watching it again even during the early episode where it's a bit brighter was giving me nerves because I knew where it was going but I, I like I said I am coming from this point of view of somebody who has seen it before going through rewatching Netflix. HT you've never seen this before and you're almost done with the series so I need to know is Evangelion as good as I'm saying it is? It really is. Um, so I'm going to go a little bit into sort of my awareness of Evangelion because uh, I 
had heard of it through um, pop culture osmosis. As any anime fan will have heard of Neon Genesis Evangelion and um, know that it's been uh, marked as the the best anime series ever, a classic, a seminal series, one that's widely influential and a pop culture cornerstone. And um, I also mostly knew it through some of the jokes that came out of it. The main one being getting the pilot Shinji and he doesn't get in the pile in the getting the robot Genji and he doesn't get in the robot. Um, and it is very much a gross misrepresentation of this series. Um, so I, when it came out in the nineties, I was a little young for it and it was definitely too dark and too weird for me. But, um, by the time I was in high school, Hideki Anno or Anno had, um, decided to adapt his series, uh, which is a 26 episode series into feature films. So he's going to condense them into, I think four feature films. Now there's still a fourth one coming out soon. So in 2007, the first one came out and I being curious decided to check it out. And I have to say, I wasn't totally into it. I found it to be very morose and very dour. And um, it definitely was a bit too dark and heavy for me. It was very slow. It was very cerebral, but in a way that I found just overly depressing rather than something that could be taken in stride. Um, So, and I remember, I think in 2007, uh, Anna was starting to change things a few with the the series a little bit in his adaptation of it of uh, in, in feature film form. And I felt almost like uh, a rejection of technology in some senses too, and that alienation that comes through technology, which is interesting and was an interesting thread. But it was something that I was also kind of tired at, of at that point. So I watched the first film, which I think covered up through maybe the first seven episodes of the series and I just kind of never picked up on it again Uh, but now with the anime series on Netflix I decided to take another stab at it because I am older and I have uh, more of an ability to process these kind of things and I absolutely love it I'm also absolutely thrown by it I don't know how to process it yet and I don't think I'll still be able to process it even after I finish it I'm about six episodes away from the end. And this is the part where it's starting to get very abstract and reckoning with the concepts of the self and the soul. And I'm very much down for that. I think though that it is better in series form than when I saw it as a film because uh, with the series being longer, it is able to pepper in these moments of levity. Um, and that makes a lot of the more dour, more cryptic stuff, easier to swallow. But then I also find that those episodes that have long meandering stretches of just contemplating your existence are the ones that I like the most. So it's just, it's it's a very funny reversal for me because uh, when it was in film form, I just did not like that. But now those episodes are my favorite. It was episode four, I think that really turned me around and I was like, wow, okay, this is just for me. I tweeted about it. It was um, an episode in which Shinji basically goes through like this entire process of uh, figuring out what he wants to do and just kind of contemplating his own existence while doing it on lots of trains. And I, I just love that. I'm a sucker for long stretches of thinking out your existence on, existence on trains. <laughs> so, um, I mean, that's half the reason why Spirited Away is my favorite Ghibli film. Um so this film, this series, I think, is probably best described as maybe the apotheosis of anime because it takes 
all that anime is capable of and all the weirdness and all the uh, more unseemly seemly elements and puts it towards something just meaningful and different and uh, challenging. And I, for sure, am really excited to see where it goes next. I also feel profound sadness every time I just watch an episode. <laughs> but um, I will I, you know, I, I will have my criticism. I'm sure there are the depictions of the female characters that aren't quite up to par with today's standards. Um, but I think that they um, play into Anno's uh, sort of religious um, subtext as well his idea of motherhood and womanhood and that kind of being an interplay in um, the just like the existence. I mean, I was also kind of spoiled for the series. I do know the true existence of the Evangelions before I came into it. So I, it was fun seeing actually and picking up all the clues that go into it that are woven in throughout the series. And um, yeah, every shot of the series is just so laden with meaning and nuance. Um, the last time I remember like, something being so packed full of just meaning like that is maybe watching lost and being as infuriating as that is also lost. Um, (laughs) But I would compare this also to, and in terms of like how it grapples with the abstract concepts of the self, um, it reminded me a lot of under the skin. If any of you guys have seen that, Um, that idea of uh, these sort of opaque and um, un- uh, in, impenetrable ideas of just uh, the self that are presented in there. And that's something I think that Evangelion, Evangelion, I don't know how to pronounce it actually, because they pronounce <laughs> it different ways in English and Japanese. Yeah. Um, Eva uh, deals with and grapples with. Um, I think I'm rambling a little bit. Uh, it's something that I feel like warrants you know, a two hour discussion between me and Jacob. Talk about it later. And, uh, Maybe additional podcast I, episode. Yeah, exactly. I have something else I wanted to say, but I can't remember what's the life of me now, and I'm going to beat myself up over it. Well, um, just, I, can, I can clue this as close as off by saying, hey, she has ever been a, a better anything about people being very sad to be inside giant robots? <laughs> yes, yes. Giant <laughs> robots that may or may not stand for the womb and everything else. Surrounded by supporting characters who at first appear to be anime archetypes, but are slowly deconstructed to realize they're just as sad as you are. Yeah, everyone is sad. <laughs> it's, the best, the equivalent it's one of the best of, um... things ever made, HT. Yep. <laughs> uh, and where can um, people see I, Eva? Uh, this is, they're all streaming on Netflix now. Um, Chris, I know you don't really watch anime series, and I know you probably would hate me if I recommended this as your first ever anime series. But I feel like this would appeal very specifically to you. I think you would, I think this show gets Chris. I think Anno and Chris are, are like intertwined on a on like a soul level. <laughs> All right, maybe I'll maybe I'll check it out someday. Yeah. Someday. And, <laughs> and Chris is uh, more important than all of us. He has a screening coming up, so uh, I'm going to ask him what he saw this week, and then he's going to have to run off. So, uh, but before you run off, Chris, what did you watch this week? Uh, so I finally watched the the Netflix show Dead to Me, which. Um, Stars Christina Applegate and, oh, God, what is her name? I can't remember all of a sudden. Linda Cardellini from Freaks and Geeks and uh, several other things. And uh, I don't know if if this show is, like, under the radar or what, but it's so good. I think it's it's one of my favorite Netflix shows I've ever seen. It's, it's really dark, but also really funny, and it's really emotional. And it, it's just great to watch these two actresses who I feel like – 
are really good actresses who ended up like with careers they didn't really just like they, they've sort of ended up with these like like low key careers where they they really deserve more and this this show finally gives them an opportunity to shine and it, it's so it's such a good <laughs> um way to showcase their talents and just the writing of the show is phenomenal um it's about uh Christina Applegate plays this woman who um her her husband was recently killed in a hit and run and she you know she's going through this this big emotional breakdown and she goes to this grief group and uh, it's there she meets Linda Cardellini's character, who's also uh, suffering from a loss. And they become really good friends. And uh, then the show starts throwing like one twist after another at you. Pretty much like every episode ends with this like jaw dropping twist that you're not going to see coming. And just everything about this show from beginning to end, I, I love. The episodes are only like 30 minutes each, which is like my favorite ideal link for a for a netflix show at this point because a lot of netflix shows are just too long and so if, if you're out there you're looking for something to watch on netflix i highly recommend this show called dead to me it's already been renewed for a second season so uh, you know it's it's, it's going to be around for just a little bit more at least so I, i'd recommend catching up on it before the second season shows up by the way it's funny how like the joke two years ago was like Netflix renews every single show, and now it's like Netflix kills every single show they, they, have, they have. Yeah, I'm sure they'll they'll kill this after a while too. But for now, it's it's still alive. Yeah, it's so still alive. check it out. Um, and I think a couple weeks ago you mentioned that you had only seen Death Proof in theaters when Grindhouse came out, and you didn't love it. Uh, you were gonna rewatch it. Right. So Death Proof for the longest time has been my least favorite Tarantino movie. Um, and I, I only saw it once when it came out in theaters as part of Grindhouse. And I really didn't like it. In fact, I would even go as far to say, like, I kind of hated it when I saw it. And but, you know, in the years since then, I've seen a lot of people, you know, people whose opinions I value say it's it's actually really good and it's a it's one of his best films and all this and i was like those people are crazy i don't know what they're talking about wait wait and someone has said that it's one of his best films i've seen several people say it, it's they think it's like his best movie which i don't agree with at all but that's neither here nor there but so i i, I you know i was like you know what the hell with it i'm finally going to give death proof a chance all these years later and see if i like it more um you know i really do I, I like this movie now. I, I I still think it's my least favorite Tarantino movie, uh, but it's not as bad as I remember it being. And in fact, in a lot of places, it, it's quite fantastic. Um, I think the first half, it's really, it's two movies in one. And I think the first half is much better than the second half. And I think part of that is the casting. I don't want to single anyone out, but you know, Quentin Tarantino's dialogue is great. Everyone knows Tarantino's dialogue is great, but it's also only as great as the performer delivering it. And, you know, a, a, a performer who's not as good can't make that dialogue work. And the, the actresses in the first segment, first half of the film, they all nail it. They're all really good at, at, at delivering that Tarantino-esque dialogue. But some of the actresses in the second half are not as good. And I think it, that really um, capsizes the film a bit because, you know, it's the same style of dialogue, just not as good performers delivering it. But beyond that, this, this movie is pretty damn good. Um, the, you know, the big car chase at the end is, is 
phenomenal, especially for Tarantino, who, you know, I don't think you'll think of him as an action director, really, even though he has, you know, Kill Bill and stuff. He's not really thought of as, you know, an action filmmaker, but that's a really exciting car chase, uh, the way it's shot. And, you know, the the car crash at the, at the first half of the film, which is like shockingly gory, is, is pretty impressive, too. It's so, um, yeah, I, uh, you know, I, I still don't think it's as good as all of his other movies, but I am glad I finally revisited it. I don't know if I just wasn't in the right mindset when I saw it all those years ago or if I was just exhausted after sitting through Robert Rodriguez's film, whatever that was, Planet Terror, which I also didn't like. But for whatever reason, I didn't care for it then. I, I like it now. Well, cool. Okay, Chris, uh, go off to your screenings. We're going to continue this water cooler without you. All right. Have we'll fun, per- we'll everyone. pretend that you're here. Yes, please do. Bye. Bye. Okay. Hey, Chris. Chris, what do you think? Pretty good. <laughs> Pretty good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we'll have to do that. Okay. Um, what have I been watching? Uh, I watched this Netflix game show called Awake. Did I hear someone talk about that on this podcast? Or was it one of the other podcasts that are in my head? It must be someone else. Yeah. I don't think we've discussed I, Awake. I think Dave talked about it. He was oh, tweeting about it. Maybe that's where I heard about it from. Maybe it was from Dave uh, on the Slash Filmcast. Uh, well, anyways, okay, so Netflix has this new game show called Awake. And uh, I saw this. It, it basically, what happens here? This is interesting. They start off with seven contestants in a room. And they're in the middle of the room is a gigantic bin of quarters, right? And each of them has the desk and they have, they go to the bin of quarters and they have to load quarters into the, into their bag and bring it to the desk and start counting them. And they count the quarters for 24 hours with no record keeping, no sleep. They, they have to, uh, just remember the total. Now, uh, this is before the show starts, right? So the show begins after they've been awake for at least 24 hours. They've been counting these quarters. And um, basically it starts off with uh, the slowest counter, the person who counted the the least amount of quarters goes home, and the person who had the least accurate count goes home. That leaves five people ready to compete for this game show for a million – for possibly a million dollars. And what happens is each round, these people do this insane thing, you know, this thing that either challenges their uh, their powers to, you know, thread a uh, literally thread a thread through a needle or like one was like who can drink the most um, slushy in the period of like a minute or something like that like ridiculous challenges and after each challenge they have a thing called the buyout which basically the person at the end of that challenge the person who did the worst and people can't see each other uh is going to go home but there is the possibility that they offer this amount of money and if someone thinks that they did the worst they can hit the button and get the buyout and actually they'll go home with some money um that's actually one of the more interesting things in this game. Uh, it, it goes – I feel like this is getting – it's very convoluted. This whole thing is very convoluted. Um, the interesting thing is it, it gets to the end of this show and it gets down to two people. Uh, and the person who counted the most accurately ends up taking home that amount or 
they can risk that amount to take home the total of what the seven people at the beginning of the show counted if they can guess the amount that they counted within $500. Does that make sense? <laughs> no, what? it doesn't make any sense. Okay, so say I count you, it. This sounds like you showed this like during RoboCop, like during the all the commercial spiels during RoboCop of all like the futuristic <laughs> evil game shows. This would be on there. I feel like this is a human shit. rights violation. It's a game shit. <laughs> it, it is insane. Lack of sleep is torture. That's literally used as torture. It, it is. It is. But it's funny to see people risk everything for possibly a million dollars based on account of something they did for 24 hours. And it's at least the two episodes I watched, it never is close to accurate. Like, you cannot keep track of what you're counting for quarters. Um, but, uh, yeah, it, it, it's fun. I'm not sure it's a good game show, but uh, I wanted to put it on everybody's radar because the concept's just, like, so insane. Sounds horrifying. I'm sorry. <laughs> Sounds horrifying, and I'm watching it tonight. <laughs> no. <laughs> it, it's definitely not good, but it's definitely uh, worth, like, a Kate watching or just, I don't know. Yeah. Uh, I also watched um, the HBO documentary uh, The Last Watch. This is – Jacob, you talked about this last week, right? Uh, wasn't me. Oh, the Game of Thrones, The Last Watch, Peter? Yes. Oh, yeah, yes. Yeah. Jacob and I have... me. Yeah. yeah, we've both talked about that, yeah. Okay, I was very confused there for a second because yeah. I was pretty sure you recommended this to me. Okay, uh, now I'm not someone who watches Game of Thrones. I'm not a fan of Game of Thrones, but Jacob sold me on this last week um, because of uh, talking about how it kind of gives us a peek into all aspects of the production. And uh, so I watched this with Kitra, who is a hardcore Game of Thrones fan. And I got to say, this is a great documentary. It uh and probably for the reason I, I'm not sure Game of Thrones fans are gonna love this documentary, but I feel like I love this documentary as a as a fan of the filmmaking process. Like this shows you extras casting, it shows you the security guard, like that's you know keeping people out of the parking lot. It shows you uh the table read to like you know how intense the set construction is. All about like getting a glimpse at all the jobs required for this insane production uh, from the head of the snow, the guy that's like in charge of creating the snow that's on set uh, to the, to the like visual effects, makeup artists that are in a tent applying wounds on, to extras for 18 hours a day. Um, a lot of filmmaking documentaries concentrate just on like the creatives, usually the writing, the acting, directing, cinematography. Uh, this focuses on the production itself and, the, you know, a family of hundreds of people to put on the show and a choreography of logistics that's like unfathomable and impossible. But I guess it is possible. Um, it's impressive seeing them transform a parking lot into uh, King's Landing and it, it's it's um I don't know I, I was just very impressed by this and I think I, I would recommend this to everyone uh, Game of Thrones fans and uh, just fans of the filmmaking process in general but uh, I'm wondering like HD you haven't seen this yet or um, no I haven't I didn't really feel a need to although like yeah. one of the things I liked about Game of Thrones was just how impressive the production and like the cast and crew were 
yeah, I think he might uh, might like this. Uh, hmm. Jacob, I I, feel, I don't know. I feel like there's no one here I can a- ask about this, but like I- I'm really wondering what a hardcore Game of Thrones fan that isn't into like the filmmaking would would think of this documentary because it's so not giving them what they want from I think of Game of Thrones making of documentary, but but I love it. Yeah, I mean, it, like, it, like you, as you point out, there's almost there's almost no time with the actors, other than when they're interacting with you know this, the the crew members. There's almost no time at all spent with the, the writers or the creators. It is purely the physical process. I feel like that was a creative choice, you know, saying like, say like, you know, this is not a documentary about giving you answers or, or the writers explain themselves. It's a process about or documentary about people who's spent a decade of their lives, you know, in their career making the show happen. And that's why I think, as you said, it. It's not necessarily a documentary for Game of Thrones fans. It's a documentary for people who are interested in what film says they're actually like, which is a lot of people working really hard for 18 hours a day. Yeah, it's pretty insane. So I highly recommend that. It's called, I guess, Game of Thrones The Last Watch? Yeah, not just The Last Watch. That's why I was so confused, Peter. I feel bad. (laughs) It's fine. Uh, Brad, what have you been watching this week? What what does Chris think? I haven't seen it. Okay. (laughs) Brad? Yes, um, I just wanted to make sure that Chris wasn't going to say anything else. Uh, <laughs> um, I got around to seeing Bar- Dark Phoenix and Men in Black International, um, and I can describe. Wait, 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 wait a second. What, what did Chris think of those movies? Uh, Chris, Chris, I love them. I don't even need to hear him say say what he said about them, but I know that he adored them, and we'll probably put them in his top ten by the end of the year. I'm Chris, and the Dark Phoenix is the X Men, and the other one is about the Men in Black, and they both made me unhappy. <laughs> Chris sounds like a mumbly old man. <laughs> um, no, they are both uh, aggressively average and painstakingly predictable. And such a waste of both of their franchises' namesake. Uh, Dark Phoenix is just middling and whatever and doesn't do anything you don't expect. And it feels like such uh, a weak ending to an entire franchise. Like, the ending of this movie doesn't feel like a final note on an entire series. It feels like the ending of an X-Men movie. Uh, the, the end of X-Men Days of Future Past would have been a far more significant and better ending to the entirety of the X-Men franchise. Um, and I think that that's Matthew Vaughn recently said that was always his original intention, but Fox wanted to do it much sooner than he, than he did. And uh, the Men in Black International, it's, it's such a waste of Tessa Thompson and Chris Hemsworth. They have phenomenal chemistry together, and this script gives them nothing funny to do. I laughed maybe twice throughout this entire movie, uh, and the action itself is is boring. There's even things where like it doesn't entirely make sense like within their own rules. Um, there's there's a part in this movie where Chris Hemsworth and Tessa Thompson are tearing through this uh, like desert uh, like town city whatever you want to call it on a hovering motorbike that he borrows from an alien, and they're tearing through all these different streets and alleys. Tons of people can see them, but only at one significant point do they decide to get a neuralizer out and flash some of the people, and then even after that. They still speed through a bunch of parts of the city and don't bother neuralizing anybody. Um, it's just I, I don't I don't understand. Both of these movies are such massive disappointments uh, for you know the kind of movies that came before them. Not that the Men in Black sequels were anything to write home about, but the first Men in Black movie is is a classic. Um, and it's just both these movies are just, are just awful, bad. Yeah. So you agree with Chris? Yes. <laughs> you know, Chris is always right. 
What? I don't I don't know what this impression is, but it's one of the worst I've ever heard. I, I, I love how bad this is. <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. This is, this is Christian Vangelister from Philadelphia. What? Chris, did you just get back from the dentist? I like horror movies. And I dislike lots of things. What oh is going God. on? The, the saddest part of this is Chris is never going to hear it. That's probably true. Um, so, and then I also uh, watched a few episodes. Uh, My next guest needs no introduction uh, with David Letterman. It's his Netflix original show where he just sits down and has basically an hour long conversation with somebody interesting, whether it's a celebrity or a political pundit or something like that. And I, uh, I watched the Tina Fey episode, um, the George Clooney episode, and the Jay Z episode. Um, and I hope he keeps making these. Uh, this show for a long time because he has such candid and calm and relaxed conversations with all of his guests. Um, it's, you know, it's even, it's cool even seeing someone, you know, like Jay Z uh, who, you know, has been seen as being pretty intimidating, you know, uh, uh, just sit down and just have a cool uh, talk with David Letterman and joke around with them and that kind of thing. It's um, David Letterman feels like he's just friends with everybody. And it's this series is more of what I wish uh, comedians in cars getting coffee was because as much as I like Jerry Seinfeld's uh, little mini series I feel like they don't get to dive too deep into certain things that I wish they would spend more time on especially with the comedians that he gets on that show but here Letterman has conversations that are um, it's like a more fun version of inside the actor studio even though the person isn't always an actor he just he, he talks about their early life and significant milestones their career and jokes around and it's just uh it's just it's a great show what, what do you think of like the documentary segment i like it um it's I, I think it mixes it up enough um to give it give it a different style at first i thought it felt a little bit forced especially because in the uh tina fey episode he is hanging out with uh buddy guy and goes to uh, a Chicago pizza place. And there's only like a tangential connection to that because Tina Fey talks about uh, deep dish pizza briefly during their interview. And it seemed kind of like a weird side. But then in the the George Clooney one, it made more sense because they go and talk to uh, his parents and hang out there. So I, I, I um, I'll probably have a better, I guess, opinion on it as I watch more of the episodes. But I guess for now, it's it's either hit or miss. Not that the Buddy Guy thing wasn't interesting, but it just felt kind of out of place with the Tina Fey episode. Yeah. I think that's been my experience with the couple. Of them. Well, not out of place, but it just seems kind of crammed, like forced in there. I, I feel like I, I just want the episode to be the whole conversation. But I don't know. Maybe that's le- less interesting than having it a little bit edited. Um, okay, let's move on to Ben. Ben, what have you been watching? Yeah, uh, last Tuesday I went to the Vista Theater, which is a small one-screen theater in Los Angeles, to see... Uh, John Woo's 1989 movie, The Killer, uh, which is the first time I'd seen it on the big screen. I'd seen the film before and really liked it. But um, John Woo was there in person and he did like a handprint ceremony out front, sort of like out in front of uh, Grauman's Chinese Theater, what used to be known as Grauman's Chinese Theater in L.A. where, you know, celebrities have their handprints and stuff. Uh, The Vista Theater does has their own like sort of a smaller, more intimate version of that. Um, And John Woo was added to their ranks in this handprint ceremony. And he did uh, a lengthy Q 
Q&A right before the movie, too. And he, he told us about making the movie and, and um, you know, that this film was shot with no script and no storyboards. Um, and he talked about how Chow Yun-Fat, who stars in the film, actually cut his eye during one of the stunts because there were like explosions and, and um, you know, the... Uh, all sorts of things going off in this movie because this was made in the late 80s and and CG uh, technology wasn't quite there yet. So they did a lot of practical stunts and and practical uh, explosions on the set. And he ended up like, I think it was like a piece of wood or something. He was like rolling around on the floor, you know, shooting (laughs) in this in this big shootout sequence and um, like a shard of wood sliced his eye. Um, So that was pretty intense. But man, this movie is so great. If you guys have not seen The Killer, it is terrific. It's about Chai Yun-Fat, who plays a like an assassin who ends up accidentally damaging the eyes of a singer. And he falls in love with her and the, the two of them sort of become a couple. She doesn't know who he is. She doesn't realize that he's the guy who injured her and then it's also about this cop who, who is trying to track Chai fat down and um it's like you know there is no point break without this movie there's no john wick without this movie there's no heat the michael mann film without this film the the church shootout in this movie is like a precursor to the lobby gunfight in the matrix um with just debris going everywhere and like slow-mo and john woo is like the master of uh, I mean, he's a Hong Kong action filmmaker, but like the, he's the master of action. Cool. If that's a thing. And um, this movie is just, it's so much fun. There's like a lot of the same sort of like homoerotic undertones in this movie that, that you saw or that you would see in uh, point break a couple years later, which I love as well. Um, and yeah, I just, I mean, for anybody who loves action movies, if you've not seen this one, this and hard boiled are like the two, arguably the two, John Woo movies that um, he's probably best known for. Maybe A Better Tomorrow. You can throw that one in there as well. But uh, if if he is not in your rotation, if he's somebody that you haven't really delved into, or at least his his earlier Hong Kong stuff, um, you got to check those movies out. So that's the killer. Uh, I'm not sure if it's streaming anywhere right now, but I, I saw that in a like a repertory uh, screening. So that was really terrific. I don't know. Have you guys seen the? Please tell me everyone here has seen the killer. Yes. Oh yeah, it, it rules. To use our favorite word. Okay. <laughs> I haven't seen the killer. Oh, Brad. Oh man. Yeah. I mean, if you if you love action stuff, you got to check this out. HG, have you seen it? I've only seen parts of it. I it was a long time ago. I need to watch the whole thing. Yeah, I think you would really appreciate it, HT, especially like the the relationship elements. There's a lot. I mean, not necessarily between uh, Chow Yun Fat and his romantic lead, but the uh, the relationship between him and and the cop. I think um, you would get more of a kick out of, but. The plot, I wonder, it it kind of resembles that Charlie Chaplin um, movie in which he uh, is thought to be a wealthy man by this blind girl, if that That makes sense. That would not surprise me. I've not seen the movie that you're talking about, but I know that that John Woo is is very much, like, influenced by uh, classic Hollywood, and he loves, like, old-school musicals, and he he mentioned Singing in the Rain being a big influence on him during this Q&A, so I would not be remotely surprised, especially since he went into this movie without any script to see something like that, uh, you know, if, if that was a movie that indeed influenced him to to sort of see him, uh, you know, riff on elements of it, of something like that it, uh, sort of on the fly in this movie wouldn't surprise me at all. Yeah. It, it is I, Chris Evangelista, and I'm letting you know that the movie H.T. is thinking of is City Lights, which is about a homeless man who tries to get operation money to help a blind woman get her eyesight back through a very 
series of calamities, he does so and they fall in love. And much like how Jackie Chan influenced, was influenced by Buster Keaton, it's very clear that a lot of these Hong Kong and Chinese filmmakers were obsessed with classic Hollywood and shows in their films. <laughs> Thanks, Chris. Thanks, Chris. And yeah, I'm happy I made a, a good insight into that. Um, I also saw The Farewell, which is directed, written and directed by Lulu Wang. This movie played at Sundance earlier this year. It stars Aquafina, and it's about um, this. Aquafina plays uh, a Chinese American woman who goes back to China with her family when uh, her grandmother has been diagnosed with lung cancer. And the family is keeping that a secret from the grandmother. So it's it's all about uh, it's a pretty low key family relationship drama. Um, I liked it, didn't love it, but I think uh, it got a lot of positive buzz out of Sundance. Brad, did you see this and review it for us, or was that Chris that saw it? I don't no, remember now. Chris reviewed it, but I did okay. see it, uh, and I, it's it's outstanding. I feel like you're 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 downplaying it. I, yeah, I mean, I might be. I just I I think. Uh, especially Aquafina, like, you know, she's, she's known for sort of like, um, high energy comedy stuff, um, from what we've seen from her thus far. But this movie, I think shows that she can be a really, really great, uh, grounded, dramatic actor as well. And it's, it seems rare to me that you would get something like, you know, because she just broke out, like, what, a year or two ago as like a, a made, um, major star. And for her to, um, to take a hard turn like this so quickly seems like, uh, uh, well, it might not be rare that she took the hard turn, but for her to take that turn and knock it out of the park so well seems m- might be a little bit more rare. Anyway, I think she's fantastic in the movie, in the movie. And I think th- there's a lot to like about it. I just, I guess it was hyped up maybe a bit too much for me from Sundance where I, I walked away with a lot to think about and a lot to like, but I wasn't like, floating as I left the theater as I sort of hoped that I would be. So that's the farewell. Uh, it's coming out in theaters on July 12th. A24 is releasing that. Speaking of floating, you saw Spirited Away? Yes. So this is the first time that I've seen. So I, I saw my my um, relationship with um, Hayao Miyazaki is, is I've only seen Princess Mononoke. And I think that was it. Uh, so this is... Um, <laughs> like one of his better known movies. And I know that she is a massive fan and hearing her talk about him for the past, however long we've been doing this two years or something on this podcast at this point. Uh, I just realized that I really need to make the time and, and dive into his filmography. And I decided to start with spirited away because that was one that I think is maybe one of the best known. And I didn't even realize that it was HG's favorite until she said that earlier on this episode of the podcast. So that's, that's a, a fun thing too. Uh, man, this movie is, uh, it's something it's, um, it really throws you into the story almost immediately into this, this really strange world. It's about this, I think she's supposed to be 10 year old girl who uh, with her family, her family has moved her to a new town and they're trying to get to their new house. The dad ends up taking a shortcut and they basically just go into this um, other world and they realize that uh, it's like an amusement park slash um, bathhouse for the dead. And she, it, it reminded me a little bit of Coco in that way where she, she is like the one human character among all of these spirits and, and interesting looking other characters and her parents get turned into pigs almost immediately in the movie. And it's like, what the hell am I watching here? Cause I, I didn't read the back of the box. I didn't know anything about this movie going in. I just like put it in my player and hit play. I watched the Blu-ray version of it. And uh, so I was really just like thrown into this world and, and sort of, 
I, I appreciated that actually. How how um, Miyazaki doesn't hold your hand. He doesn't really go above and beyond in terms of like explaining what the hell is going on until you know a little ways into the movie before you even like are able to get your bearings on it. But the world is so interesting. And for me, the film is like a, a really great um, example of a blending of the beautiful and the grotesque at the same time. There are shots in this movie that are absolutely gorgeous. There's, there are moments where you could just like, you know, take a screenshot and, and print it out and make a screen print or something and hang it on your wall. And like the way that he plays with lighting and camera angles are just um, really breathtaking in some, in some cases. But then there's also some of the most disgusting, like drooly, uh, bulbous creature design and just really off-putting, disgusting creatures that are you spend a lot of time with in this world. And so um, it's almost like this weird disconnect of like, how in the hell can this movie be so beautiful and so ugly at the same time? But the ugliness is like designed. It's on purpose. You know, it's not it doesn't result from laziness or anything like that. So um, the score of this film is unbelievably good. I, I found myself really uh, being affected by it, especially at the end when it just sort of like these, this theme like returns over and over again. And I just, man, it's, it's so good. So I, I, I don't know. I still don't really know how I feel about it. I, I think I, I appreciate a lot of it and I loved a lot of it. And then there are some parts that I'm still like, <laughs> I find myself still repulsed by even thinking about it now. And I also don't know how in the hell kids can watch this, even though it's, it's clearly designed to be a kid's movie. And like uh, the messages in it are, are seem like tailor-made for um, to like that are, they're designed for children to uh, internalize. I feel like I would have been scarred if I was a kid and saw some of the stuff like the witch and her face and this massive nose and just like the it reminded me of like the child catcher and Chitty Chitty Bang Bang or something where you're just like, what in the hell am I looking at here? So, um, yeah, that that's spirited away. But H.A., I'm sure you have some sort of response to all this. Oh, well, I wanted to say first um, that the guy who composed this film and has uh, composed Every Miyazaki film and almost every Studio Ghibli film is Joe Hisaishi. And he is an incredibly talented composer, one of my favorites, and uh, was my study music for, like, all of college. And I still listen to him. He's just fantastic. And, yeah, the scores for Spirit Away are some of my favorites ever, especially the one on the train that I was speaking of before. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, it's um, Spirit Away is a really interesting, really uh, weird movie to unpack. At its core, it's basically just an Alice in Wonderland type story. Mm-hmm. But um, I feel like this uh, was sort of Miyazaki's ode to Japanese culture and the Japanese youth. I could write a whole essay about this probably, but um, it's interesting that um, a lot of his films actually don't really take place in Japan. There's only like a, a select few that do. Um, a lot of his films have this sort of European uh, sort of influence, and there's actually a term for it. I I don't know the Japanese term, but it translates to Paris of my mind, which is kind of this fantastical view of European culture and um, aesthetic through this Eastern lens. And so uh, with Spirit Away, Miyazaki was kind of doing a homecoming in a sense and packing all of his sort of feelings and ideas about Japanese culture and the new generation of Japanese people into this film. And um, uh, the character of Sen, uh, Chihiro, uh, is influenced actually by a child of a friend who he met and who he was fascinated by and was and kind of wanted to do a movie 
about her and like through her perspective because he thought that children saw the world in such a weird and unique way that he wanted to do something that was a, a homage to that. Mm. And um, yeah, this film is, is just, it's so great. Every time I watch it, there's always something new that I pick up. Um, I love that it's overtures on like capitalism and of course, Miyazaki's typical uh, statements and um, environmentalist sort of messages that he always puts in every of his films. Um, I feel, I don't know how I could summarize this film in like one particular way. I just would say that, yeah, it's kind of his love letter to Japanese culture, Shinto culture, and just the new, the young generation, the next uh, society of Japan and like what they will bring forth. Mm-hmm. I, I've only seen about half of Miyazaki's films, but I've seen, I think, most of the popular ones. And this is my favorite of the bunch. So. Oh, interesting. Yeah, yeah I have um, my neighbor Totoro. Is that how you say that? Yeah. I, yeah, I have I have that sitting on my shelf next to watch. So uh, I also, I mean, I recommend all of them, but I that's a great one. I also recommend Castle in the Sky, uh, Kiki's Delivery Service. Um, you've seen Princess Mononoke, but I recommend seeing that again. Uh, it's just a fantastic. Uh, Nausicaa of the Valley of the Wind. All of his movies, essentially. Just see them all. <laughs> all right. Well, I'll, I'll start chipping through those one by one. Um, and then lastly, the other thing that I saw was I watched all four episodes of uh, Ava DuVernay's Netflix show, When They See Us, which is about the men who are formerly known as the Central Park Five and now are, uh, I think they are, they're now officially known as the Exonerated Five. Um, guys, holy shit. This show is just a, it's gut punch after gut punch. It is We've seen stories of injustice and the prison system and stuff like that in in shows recently, even like the night of I think of the the HBO series um, is something that immediately comes to mind. But man, this is just uh, it's brutal to watch, but I feel like still necessary, like, you know there are stories like this that need to be told and I know it's uncomfortable and I know that it sounds like it's going to be a hassle to watch, but the performances here are so, so good. And Ava is just, you know, at the top of her game here, I think, especially after wrinkle in time, which I didn't love, but liked some aspects of it's really comforting to see her, um, really hit another home run instead of sort of losing her way a little bit with that movie. Um, this seems like something that she's just so passionate about and, and it's, it, you know, it doesn't have any fantasy elements to it, but, um, man, it's so grounded. It's so real. It's painful. It is really painful to watch. Like I, I, it is visceral in a way that I, uh, wasn't expecting. And, um, the score is great too. It reminds me a little bit of if Beale street could talk there's with that sort of like ethereal, um, uplifting vibe even though the the um storyline is just it's is mired in such um god like just depressing dread and uh but yeah the performances are really really off the charts uh, for a lot of these people you know people like john leguizamo who may have written off because he hasn't really been in or hasn't really given like a memorable performance in several years is just really really good here michael k williams is very good in it as well but like the the show belongs to the the kids um the the members of the central park five and all of those actors a lot of them who i'd never seen before um just sort of took my breath away man it's it's this is a show that I would recommend to everybody and it's going to be a hard watch, but I think it's, um, it's ultimately worth it. There are, I spent a lot of the first three episodes, like holding back tears, but the dam finally broke in the fourth episode. There's this moment with, um, 
with one of the guys the, the fourth episode is basically just like follows one character through the prison system through his journey his time spent in prison and it is uh it's heartbreaking and um there's a lot of like solitary confinement stuff in there that it's just uh an insight into his mental state during that time and it's just um god it is so unfair and so uh enraging that this can happen and there's there's um yeah i'll just leave it at that but it's called when they see us and it's on netflix right now very cool okay let's uh finally getting to ht what did did you watch this past week um so i know that jacob and ben have both been bugging me to see this i finally watched the perfection and um this definitely is everything that they were cautioning me towards or maybe just kind of hinting at and more uh so this is um a film that uh is just, just, uh, just to interrupt make sure you don't spoil anything because i haven't watched yet and i want to go into it as blind as i can as well this is a film <laughs> <laughs> um it takes several hard left turns throughout this movie and i was on board with all of them honestly i have heard some of the criticisms about this movie uh, pertaining to the female characters' treatments, but I don't think that they are necessarily completely accurate to what how this what this film is trying to do. Uh, it's very heightened and very violent and very um, and lives in that sort of heightened scope that it any sort of semblance to uh, real world issues I feel like aren't quite analogous. So. Uh, I'm saying I liked it a lot, and it was definitely a film that just like took me for several journeys. But I was on board for all of them. You can't see my huge smile right now. I know. So happy you like this. (laughs) (laughs) Oh man, this movie rules. Watch it, Brad. Watch it now. I'm going to watch it. It's in my. It's like near on my my queue. I keep looking at. I'm just like, oh, I shouldn't take them. Watch it, and I, I I will soon. It's 90 minutes long. You have no excuses. Okay, so uh, what else have you been watching? So it's been raining a lot in New York the past couple of weeks. It's finally just gotten sunny recently. But um, on rainy days, I, t- I really like to just watch classic films for some reason. They just bring me comfort. And uh, I decided to watch one that I hadn't seen before. And uh, this was To Catch a Thief, directed by Alfred Hitchcock. I had seen a lot of Hitchcock movies, but I have like a couple that are missing. So I wanted to see To Catch a Thief. It has Cary Grant, Grace Kelly, two beautiful people who are who just kind of love to look at on a rainy day. And um, it follows Cary Grant uh, as a notorious cat burglar who has long been retired um, and is living in the French Riviera. But he soon discovers that a, uh, a new cat burglar has emerged and is taking his um, sort of stealing style. So he has uh, is suspect suspected of be going back into the game, and um, he goes on a mission to clear his own name and discover who the real cat burglar is. And in the process, he ends up going to this uh, beautiful sort of. Uh, hotel where he meets a young woman played by Grace Kelly who suspects that he is that cat burglar and um, when his mother her mother's jewels are stolen they have this sort of cat and mouse game that is uh, a very very fun and very riveting to watch Um, so I this is a Hitchcock film so there's actually much there's almost more of a darker undertone to sort of the more playful um, crime 
comedy uh, like structure of the story. I like it's filmed like uh, excellently as per usual, and I actually quite like the um, relationship between uh, Cary Grant's character John Roby and Grace Kelly's character Francie. There's almost like a twisted perversion to them that more than just the cat and mouse game, it's like a strange, almost toxic relationship that felt almost like the, a um, uh, Hitchcock setting the ground for uh, another toxic relationship that he would uh, explore more in Vertigo. It, it kind of has sort of the uh, the underpinnings of that. So I, I really enjoyed this film. It definitely is a little bit more of the playful kind of Hitchcock film, but it has, you know, some of the more suspenseful, some of the almost little sinister elements. There's a way that he plays with the lights in this film that are quite, um, like, uh, compelling and uh, a little unnerving. So I, I highly recommend this. This is actually streaming on Amazon Prime now, so you can see it without renting it on Amazon Prime to catch a thief. Okay, we are running long, but uh, quickly, let's move on to what we've been eating. Jacob, what have you been eating? Well, since I was in Dallas for the weekend, I decided to take the weekend off, and I ate a lot of garbage. (laughs) And uh, I'm going to recommend, if you're in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, Woodshed Smokehouse, which is just half the menu is some form of heavily breaded and fried meat or hacked up and prepared uh, potato of some kind, which is my favorite kinds of food. And uh, I probably gained 20 pounds at that table. Just like literally one of the appetizers is haphazardly cut potatoes, not French fries. Someone got, like, hacked a bunch of random potato pieces, deep fried them, and served with different kinds of sauces. It doesn't even like, no cohesion to them. It's just <laughs> random potato pieces, and they were so good. And like uh, chicken fried steak was my entree. And the breading was like half an inch thick all around the steak. It was unbelievable and disgusting and amazing. I loved it. Um, also, I ate a lot of garbage, a lot of junk food. And I came back after that weekend feeling like absolute crap. So my recommendation is to uh, have a game plan when you return from taking days off from diet because my body was not ready for it. And I suffered for 24 hours. And Peter, do you have any recommendations for, the, for everyone listening about how to deal with your body like getting angry at you for enjoying itself. I mean, that's your body's way of saying that you shouldn't be doing that, Jacob. <laughs> right? Yeah, about a weekend every few weeks is, is what I'm yeah. doing right now. Yeah, I'm, I'm still trying. After all these uh, weekend trips to Batu, I'm, I'm still trying to catch up to like my weight before the last month. So, yeah, I'm on a. I'm back on diet till Comic-Con. I decided I'm going to let myself off the hook during Comic-Con because it's hard to diet during Comic-Con. But that means until then, uh, sticking to it uh, nonstop for the next three weeks. Yeah. Well, good for you. Um, And on the other side of that coin, as always, Brad, what have you been eating and drinking this week? Garbage. Just garbage. (laughs) Uh, No, I got around to trying my new Coke uh, that I bought from the Coke shop for the Stranger Things cross-promotion. Um, for those of you that don't know, back in 1985, which is when the new season of Stranger Things takes place, uh, Coca-Cola decided to release a new version of Coke, and they called it New Coke. Uh, it was a different formula than what is now called Coca-Cola Classic, uh, and a lot of people were not too happy about it. Um, and it's mostly because uh, it tastes a lot more like Pepsi or like RC Cola. 
Uh, it does not taste like Coke, um, and that's probably what upset people the most. Uh, that being said, I, as somebody who likes Pepsi and RC Cola just fine, uh, I, it's not something that I hated, but for somebody who maybe prefers Coke over Pepsi or RC Cola, I'm sure it would be upsetting. Have you tried your new Coke yet, Peter? Or can you not because of your dieting? Um, I have not tried it, but I'm going to take like a couple sips, uh, and I'm going to record it. I'm going to do a video. Um, I feel like you should, Brad, I know we've talked about this, but you should be doing like a weekly video of like you trying out these uh, new weird food items. I I thought about it. I, I don't know. I just feel like there's so many other people who are already doing that. I'm not sure what else I bring to the table. Maybe, maybe, maybe though. Maybe. I don't, I don't know. I feel like maybe the water cooler is, is enough of that. But I, 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 I do remember trying new Coke when it first came out, like, you know, back in the day. And I remember liking it, but everybody hated it. I also like Crystal Pepsi and everybody hated that, too. So I don't know. Maybe I'm just on the wrong side of history. <laughs> um, and then I also tried uh, Wild Cherry Fanta. Uh, it's a new Fanta flavor uh, that's out right now, and it's uh, pretty good. It's a little too sweet for my taste. It almost tastes like um, carbonated grenadine, I guess is the best way to describe it. It's not quite that uh, that sugary sweet, but it, it's since it's Fanta, it's it's a pretty uh, sugary soda. But it's it's fine. I, I feel like it would be good for like mixing if you wanted to make like a almost like a summer alcoholic fruit punch or something like that. I feel like it would be good. Uh, it for that and then i tried a couple new uh oreo items there's a new oreo thins flavor that is latte uh it's a lot less coffee based than i anticipated because the a while back they released like a a dunkin donuts mocha flavor and that had a pretty heavy coffee flavor to it this doesn't um doesn't and it, it mixes pretty well with the thinner uh oreo cookies and then they uh, released a fudge-covered mint Oreo now that um, they – normally on the holidays, they have the white fudge-covered regular Oreos. Then they released the new uh, just regular fudge-covered Oreos, and they decided to do mint along with that. And as somebody who loves chocolate mint stuff, that's like right up my alley. I, I think I like these um, almost as much as the white fudge regular Oreos. They're, they're, it's a good mix with, of the cookie and the chocolate with the mint cream inside of it. See, Brad, I think here's how you do it. You do a video of the top 10 Oreo flavors in the five worst. Uh, that's probably a pretty, pretty good idea, maybe. Maybe that would be yeah. one thing I could do if I, if I did the video. Yeah. Okay. Well, anyways, uh, let's move on to what you've been playing. I think you're the only one who here who has been playing uh, Harry Potter Wizards Unite. This is like the Pokemon Go kind of style Harry Potter game. Yeah, I figured HT might get down on this. Or maybe maybe she didn't. She's just not saying anything about it for some reason, or she just hasn't had time. I haven't had time. Oh, fair enough. Um, yeah, I, so I downloaded it to try it out. Um, this is this is like the, I think the fourth like a uh, location based uh, you know air, uh, exploring game that I've played that's similar to Pokemon Go because there's the Jurassic World game which I do still play, the Ghostbusters game which was a little too complicated for my taste, and then now there's this Harry Potter one. Um, and this one is actually from Niantic, the company that made Pokemon Go, and the mechanics are very much the same as far as gameplay goes. Uh, the the the, um, the items that you're collecting are uh, are called foundables. They're these things that are scattered around um, the the world, and they're being protected by confoundables, which are like um, magical creatures or different spells or things like that um that are surrounding them and like you're basically you're trying to collect these things so that they aren't revealed to the muggle world and these things include thing um stuff from like uh spell books that are alive to different creatures to things like remembrals or 
papers from the Daily Prophet. And then there's uh, what's kind of weird, and I didn't understand how this worked at first, but there are characters from the Harry Potter franchise, like Ron Weasley and uh, Sirius Black and whatnot, who appear, and you have to, like, um, protect protect them from these things that are attacking them and then, like, help them get get away. And I was like, how does this work? Because the the game setting takes place after the events of the Harry Potter franchise because Harry, Ron, and Hermione are uh, grown up. Harry Potter is like an, an or and Hermione works for the Ministry of Magic. Uh, and Harry helps kind of guide you through parts of the game. And so I was like, how are these characters still around, when, especially when some of them are dead or are supposed to be older? And apparently they're memories of the characters that are uh, messed up with, with magic somehow. And there is a... What makes this different from Pokemon Go is that there's a story that uh, explains all this stuff, and like you kind of learn things as it goes on. Apparently, Niantic plans to make it this thing where the story keeps unfolding over an extended period of time, so it's not something that you'll necessarily beat quickly or anything like that. Um, and I've enjoyed it for the for the most part. It can be a bit repetitive. They make it a little bit more interesting because even though there aren't as many uh, items or characters to collect or protect as there are pokemon to collect in pokemon go they make it so that certain uh more powerful or uh popular characters or items you have to collect fragments of them in order to make them whole uh and then the the way you catch them is pretty cool because like you have to swirl your finger in different motions uh, that are traced out for you on the screen to cast spells um but it's yeah it's it's not that doesn't reinvent the wheel as far as the Pokemon Go format is concerned, but I'm enjoying it so far. I'll, I'll probably play it for a while longer and see, you know, what what I what kind of dent I can make in it. Um, but I don't know necessarily if it's something that I'll stick with for a long time. Well, keep us updated. We have definitely gone over our time limit here. So this is the end of the podcast. You can find the things that we mentioned linked in the show notes. You can find this podcast, Slash Home Daily, published every weekday on iTunes, Google, Overcast, Spotify, all the popular podcast apps. Please feel free to send your feedback, questions, comments, concerns to us at peter at slashhome.com. And please rate and read this podcast on iTunes. Tell your friends. Spread the word. And we'll see you tomorrow. Hey. Hey, Peter. Is this... Chris? Jacob is dead. This is Chris Evangelista. Uh, oh, no. Oh, no. Jacob! You cannot cry for him now. He is only dead. The good news is that I have acquired the book. I feel like the the impression has now disappeared completely, and it's just Jacob. The Gantrin book of insult, offense, and affrontery by Louis A. Safian. It's it is I, Chris Evangelista. Jacob. Yeah, it's almost like Chris has like inhabited Jacob's body and from and is controlling him. <laughs> oh, that would only make sense if his body wasn't dead at my feet. <laughs> wow, this is getting dark. Anyway, <laughs> I have opened this to page three hundred and eighty-seven. <laughs> Brad, he's only dull and uninteresting until you get to know him. After that, he's just plain boring. <laughs> You know, these jokes are worse when you're saying it in a zombie tone. HT, she always has a flood of words and a drought of ideas. Oh, that actually hits kind of hard. (laughs) Ben, the real problem of having leisure time is to keep him from using it. (laughs) Okay. Peter, 
It's true that he's a man of few words. The trouble is, he keeps repeating them. <sighs> and Jacob, what's the difference between Jacob and being dead? Nothing. <laughs> I am Chris Evangelista. Good night.